Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's uh, 2020 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really fascinating conversation on fluid resuscitation uh, during sepsis. Today, we're very fortunate to have uh, Drs. Mayhoff and uh, Silversides. We'll be discussing Dr. Mayhoff's uh, paper entitled Lower versus Higher Fluid Volumes During Initial Management of Sepsis a systematic review with meta-analysis and trial sequential analysis. And we'll also be discussing uh, Dr. Silverside's accompanying editorial entitled Fluid Volume Trials in Sepsis and Arid Landscape. So I'm going to allow um, each of our authors to introduce themselves. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Mayhoff. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you so much for the invitation to join the podcast. It's a it's a great opportunity. Um, my name is uh, Tina Mayhoff, and uh, I'm a medical doctor and a PhD student at the uh, Department of Intensive Care at Rieshospitalet in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, my main research interests uh, are clinical trials and sepsis and fluid therapy. Um, and I guess my, my conflicts of interest are also in relation to that. So I am the... Uh, coordinating investigator of the CLASSIC trial, which is uh, an RCT of uh, fluid therapy and septic shock. Um, and yeah, finally, my, my first language is Danish, so please bear over with me for my uh, Scandinavian accent. No, it's an absolute thank pleasure you. to have you on the podcast, <laughs> Tina, and uh, the, you speak perfectly, so thank you so much. Um, I'd like <laughs> to hand it over to uh, John, um, with, uh, Dr. Silversides, if he could also introduce himself. Hi, yes, thanks, Dominic. Uh, great opportunity to be with you, and thank you uh, so much. Um, I'm, a, I'm a consultant in critical care here in uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland, uh, and a researcher with an interest in fluid therapy and critical illness, uh, working at uh, Queen's University here in, in Belfast. So uh, really looking forward to a good conversation with you both today. Thanks for joining us, John. So let's jump into the podcast, and maybe, John, you could start it off for us. Uh, why is IV fluid resuscitation in sepsis such an important topic? Well, I suppose this is just such a, such a basic element of practice, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's something we do almost unquestioningly, uh, at least we did until, until relatively recently. Um, fluid resuscitation is... Um, heavily embedded in, in what we do. It's, it's, it's part of guidelines. It, uh, it even forms the basis for, for reimbursement in some countries. And yet we have remarkably little evidence informing our practice. And um, that's quite, quite startling and, and frankly, slightly embarrassing. Uh, we, really, we really ought to know the right way to do this. And currently, we have, uh, we have very little to go on. So, uh, so it's absolutely critical that we get this uh, uh, we get this figured out. So I just want to unpack uh, what you said there a little bit more. Um, you mentioned the fact that uh, recently uh, more conservative fluids have been uh, promoted, and uh, I guess referencing the recent uh, surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, guidelines where they advocated a conservative fluid strategy in contrast to their 
previous uh, strategy where they advocated a 30 cc per kilogram uh, fluid bolus in the first six hours. Maybe you could give us the rationale as to why you think that came about and why that's so important. Yes, well, I think we've known for some time that um, that fluid accumulation uh, is associated with uh, with worse outcomes, including mortality in in all kinds of critical illness, including in in sepsis. Um, but uh, I suppose there's a there's a mounting um, body, a growing body of evidence that um, that that uh, early uh, aggressive um, fluid loading may be may be harmful. Um, I think probably the, the the key study here has been um, from uh, Andres Perner's group that, that that Tina works with in, in Denmark with the the original classic study a few years ago. Um, it was a, a small um, pilot study, but but demonstrated uh, so, uh, uh, worse worse outcomes in terms of um, progression of acute kidney injury and other um, exploratory outcomes in uh, in patients who are given standard care, which is essentially liberal uh, fluid therapy. Um, so it's quite exciting to see practice changing, and the, the surviving sepsis guidelines have, have caught up with that to an extent. Um, but it's still, it's still early days, and we still have relatively little data on which to, to base that. Got you. So let's turn our attention to Tina. So, Tina, maybe you could go ahead and give us the motivation and rationale for your uh, systematic review and meta-analysis. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so, so first of all, I think there's a, there's a condition of sepsis. So we know that sepsis is a leading cause a cause of uh, death worldwide. Um, the most recent estimates from the uh, IHME sepsis study by Rutt, uh in that came out in 2020. Uh, the most recent estimate is that 11, causing 11 million uh, sepsis-related deaths uh, in in 2017. This is equivalent to 20% of all deaths worldwide. Um, so, so these numbers they they speak for themselves. Um, and then there's this unanswered treatment question: the fluid therapy, uh, which is uh, you already said so. It's a, it's a cornerstone treatment, and and despite that, we we know very little of best practice in this area. Um, we have the international guidelines uh, promoting the use of fairly high IV fluid volumes. You just touched upon that. There's still the guidelines are based on a low quality of evidence, um, and then uh, further on, we we knew there was there's data on suspected harm from, so to say, higher fluid volumes in trials of of other populations. Among them, there's the the FEATS trial in in African children with infection and impaired perfusion. Um, there's a FACT trial in ICU patients with uh, acute lung injury. Um, and then we knew about the the, the simple septic uh, shock protocol one and two trials. Um, so in septic patients uh, in the emergency care setting in Zambia, trials by Andrews. Um, these these trials all they all somehow um, suggest uh, suspected harm from from the use of higher fluid volumes. Um, we also looked at the um, the the systematic review and meta analysis by by John. Um, where we saw that patients who received a further uh, received a conservative fluid strategy, they had fewer fewer days on ventilator and fewer days in the ICU. Um, so, so altogether, we we also saw that that former meta analysis um, they had included a, a fairly broader patient population, um, not limited to only sepsis. Um, 
perhaps um, compared more complex hemodynamic interventions as well. And at the same time, we knew that there had been published um, smaller randomized clinical trials uh, where IV fluids were the only intervention. So, so taken together, we we wanted to assess the the, the benefits and harms um, of a conservative or lower fluid therapy in a meta-analysis of trials in only sepsis patients, um, and of trials who had the intention of, of separating IV fluid volumes between groups. Right, uh, thanks for uh, the, giving us the rationale. So, how did you go about? Um, uh, performing your your study, what were your study methods, and how did they address any limitations that you saw in prior studies on this topic? Um, yes, yeah, so, so well, first of all, we we performed an updated literature search, um, so including more recent trials, uh, but and we followed um, a pre-planned uh, published protocol, we followed the Cochrane, Prisma, and, and Grade methodologies. Um, and then we, we specified our inclusion criteria um, to include only trials of, of adult patients with sepsis, and trials, uh, as, I, as I said before, who had a, a planned separation in fluid volumes uh, or balances. Um, further, we actually specified two trials uh, where only um, hemodynamic parameters, they served as uh, triggers for fluid administration. And these decisions, they were to to try and minimize uh, clinical heterogeneity in the included trials. Um, further, we we wanted to include um, serious adverse uh, events and, and quality of life, along with uh, mortality as our co-primary outcomes. Um, so we believe these are all patient important outcomes. Um, and um yeah then then we knew from from former meta analysis um also the one by by John that no statistical significant difference in mortality was uh, observed um we we suspected the quantity of evidence um uh, was low uh, so somehow we we wanted to contribute with also um a quantification of the the knowledge accrued uh, to date um, so, so therefore, we use this uh, trial sequential analysis, or TSA. Um, and I don't know, is, is there time to touch upon that a little bit? Oh, I think that's very important. Uh, please do, and then I'll ask uh, John to comment, uh, because he also had something to say about trial sequential analysis. So go ahead, Tina. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, so just in brief, we'll try to um, explain this. So, so um the, the trial sequence analysis uh, sort of enables um, an estimation of the required information size to draw um, firm conclusions on a benefit or harm from a treatment intervention, and this is based on a, an a priori risk reduction in, for example, mortality, if, if that's the outcome investigated. So um, trial sequence analysis takes into account um, this issue of repeated testing, which is uh, performed um, in a meta-analysis when you continuously add trials. Um, so each trial has a type 1, type 2 error. Um, so then the TSA is able to calculate the confidence interval, which is uh, it's broader or it's, it's more conservative as long as the required information size has not yet been obtained. Um, so it's a bit equivalent to an interim analysis in a randomized clinical trial. So in other ways, it's like a statistical tool to help answer the question, when when is my meta-analysis conclusive? Um, yeah, and it enables us to calculate um, a required information size needed to conclude on the 
conclude something on the meta-analysis. Great. Uh, yeah, John, do you want to add to that? Yeah. Um, so, um, so, so I think uh, uh, I think uh, what, what Tina and colleagues have, have done here is to um, take a really great high-level uh, look at the the evidence out there, and, um, and I think their systematic review and meta-analysis is extremely valuable. Um, it's valuable largely in, in highlighting the deficiencies in our knowledge and. Um, uh, as I alluded to, I think I think that's that's um, slightly slightly embarrassing, um, but um, but I think it's uh, it it gives us a platform on which to to base future future work. Um, I think they've taken an extremely rigorous approach to this. Uh, they've um, been very uh, clear in their methodology used, and um, and they've 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 got the best possible. Um, Data from from the trials available. Um, I guess you know the arguments about systematic reviews are, are well rehearsed. Um, they're considered at the the top of the the evidence pyramid, um, although they're largely subject to um, the limitations of the, the studies included, uh, both the the quality and the size and the methodology and so on. Um, but the use of the trial sequential analysis allows us to get a sense not just of of a take home message but also to get a sense of how close we are to to having um, a definitive answer to to really important questions like this and um, in this case the uh, trial sequential analysis has highlighted the uh, just how far we are away from having high quality um, evidence on this topic um, so I think for the mortality outcome uh, uh, this showed that uh, we only had 15% of the required sample size to, uh, needed to, to definitively uh, answer the question. So um, we're a long, long way from, from knowing uh, the right thing to do here. And uh, what Tina and colleagues have done is, is, uh, is to highlight that very, very clearly. So, Tina, maybe you could go ahead and share with our audience what your key findings were, um, and then I'll ask both you and uh, John to tell us what your interpretation of these findings were. Tina? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do so. Um, so, I think for the key findings, uh, first of all, we should, I should probably mention as we conclude in the paper as well, it's obvious, um, John just said so as well, the quantity and also the, the quality of evidence supporting the better volume of IV fluids is still it's very low. Um, and I guess since we can discuss the paper a little bit more, we can I think we could supplement our conclusion as well to say that we think that a key finding of our review is that we've, we, we, did, we did find a relative, um, relative homogeneous trial data actually exist. Um, so they were all recent trials from 2015 onwards. They they all included adults with sepsis. All but one were conducted in the ICU setting. They were from high-income countries, and they all had a, a perceived uh, restrictive fluid administration um, in the intervention group. So that, that makes it the trials... <laughs> sort of homogeneous and, and and we think that it's 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 sound to say that these data they can be meta analyzed uh, in our opinion um and, and therefore we we i think in conclusion is we believe the point estimate for for um the primary outcome of mortality the relative of risk of uh, 0.87 so representing a 
a 13% relative risk reduction with the lower versus higher RV fluid volumes um, and a confidence interval which includes all estimates from from 31% risk reduction to a 10% risk increase in mortality um, from the conventional uh, meta-analysis. That, that we, we think it's fair to say that this represents the, the best estimate we have to date. Um, and then, a, then a, a final conclusion is that the trial sequential analysis uh, suggests the sample size um, of the outcome of mortality, a required sample size of a bit more than 4,000 patients. Um, as John said, it's Fifteen percent of the accrued knowledge, um, but this sample size it, it should also realistically be reached by some of the ongoing uh, RCTs, so namely the um, the classic trial and also the the Clovis, uh, trial populations. Um, so we think that it should be realistic to uh, to, to uh, by the data from these trials to to reach some more. Some more firm conclusions to this um, this clinical question. The take-home message is you found no statistically difference uh, difference in uh, mortality between low versus higher fluid volumes, and that we only got a portion of the data that we require. But you feel that the we should be able to uh, have enough studies in the future or enough data in the future to answer this question. Um, John, what is your take-home message uh, from uh, uh, Tina's outstanding uh, systematic review and meta-analysis? Well, I think I, I think we uh, I think what Tina and colleagues have done is is to arrive at the best possible estimate um, of effect size, uh, and I'd absolutely agree with with that. Um, I suppose when we take it away from from an academic discussion and bring it to the bedside, what does what does it mean? Well, to me, the um, nothing we do in medicine should be thoughtless, and I, I think there's always an onus. Uh, a requirement for us to justify everything that we do. So when it comes to the example of liberal versus uh, conservative fluid, well, the default should be to do less. Uh, <laughs> so um, given that we have a point estimate now, it's telling us to um, that, that uh, our, our best guess is that uh, conservative fluid uh, reduces mortality, uh, then that's, that's what we should do. Um, but uh, we're a long way from being having any kind of certainty around that, uh, and uh, at the same time we have to um, we have to to do something. Uh, so uh, it's it's uh, I guess this this study just highlights the um, challenge or, and the way in which we derive pragmatic ways of working around our lack of knowledge. Um, so, uh, so in terms of interpretation, um, conservative fluid is seems to be safe. Uh, it may be better. The um, uh, the findings are consistent with um, either benefit or harm. But our best estimate is that there's a reduction in um, mortality with conservative fluid, um, and that uh, we really look forward to the the big studies that are coming down the track that will hopefully answer this question more definitively. I do want to unpack uh, some of the findings uh, uh, that Tina mentioned. And one thing that struck me uh, from from table two was whether or not there was actually even a biologically plausible um, effect of having 
a difference in fluid therapy effect mortality. Um, in Table 2, Tina, you, you found that in some instances there was actually no separation in terms of administration of volume of fluid um, in some studies, and in others yeah. uh, it was maybe 1,200 cc's of fluid to 2.5 liters of fluid. And the question that some um, clinicians may ask themselves is, uh, would I expect to see a mortality difference um, in administering uh, a difference of two liters of fluid uh, between two patients with sepsis or septic shock? And what would your response to that be? I think that's a that's a it's a very very good point and it's an excellent uh, question. I I also I, I also agree with the uh, clinical point of view that John uh, that John explained before. Um, we we actually discussed a lot and it is a, it is a finding of this review as well that that only uh, four trials four out of nine, nine trials actually succeeded in separating the IV fluid volumes and and. We discussed beforehand if, it, I mean, should these trials be included um, if they actually didn't obtain separation? Um, but but looking at it from a, a clinical perspective, then then these these uh, these um, these sort of boxes of, of higher or lower fluid volumes they are they are very they're arbitrary they are theoretical. So how would you know if you're giving higher or lower fluid volumes to a certain patient? Um, so, so I think that that um, taking that into account, they they should definitely be included in the review to uh, to um, to to include all possible data. Um, and I think a, a smaller finding of the review for for other for other trial groups could also be to to look at the um, look at the trials who succeed in separating fluid volumes um in order to conduct future trials or to to um i think you know for 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 a certain patient uh we still don't have firm uh, data to say if 2 liters or not uh, would benefit i mean um so 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 i think that from from current trials and from from coming trials in this area we could look at the um the criteria for fluid administration uh, used in the trials, and if they are if they are pragmatic, uh, sound uh, criteria that can easily be implemented in in in, cl in a clinical setting, that is something you can, as a clinician, use. Um, for example, taking the trigger criteria for some of the trials that that um, that, that succeed in separating fluid volumes. Thank you, Tina. Um, uh, John, what is your response to that, and uh, what is your comment on whether or not uh, it's even biologically plausible that we would have a mortality outcome? Well, I think it's a really good question as well, um, and I, I don't have a, a, a clear answer. I, I suppose um, I think that Tina did the right thing in terms of including these trials. Um, ultimately, uh, I guess when we put people in trials, we randomize them to one or more strategies. Uh, and we don't necessarily know, we, we, we don't know up front whether that's always going to result in separation uh, between, between groups. Um, and as a clinician, when you have a patient in front of you, you will start on a strategy and you won't necessarily know what the final uh, tally of fluid administered will be. So, so I suppose we, you know, in, in that sense, this is a pragmatic way to um, to guide uh, clinical practice. Um, is it biologically plausible that it's 
small difference in fluids administered will change mortality? Uh, we don't know. It's, it's certainly consistent. Uh, there's a consistent signal. Um, there are, uh, aside from the trials included here, there's a, a very, very large volume of um, observational evidence uh, suggesting harm with, with more fluid and with fluid overload and, and so on. Um, so it's consistent. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it, we, we have to do the trials and find out. Um, there isn't, really isn't uh, another way to, to know. Um, so, so I guess that's, that's kind of where we're up to. But, um, but as to, so maybe I'll as ask to whether, you... Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll ask you another question, um, and the question I have is maybe we asking ourselves the wrong question because, as you alluded to, when we have the patient in front of us, kind of the clinical question that we ask with the patient in front of us is, what is the optimal fluid volume for this patient at this time? And that question kind of changes during the course of the day on that patient and uh, the next day that we see the patient, and it's almost as though we've taken that question and tried to extrapolate it to thousands of patients uh, being seen by numbers of uh, clinicians, and for some reason we think that that very specific question for one patient at a specific time point should be measured out or, 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 or extrapolated to thousands of patients across the course of their hospitalization for sepsis. Is that maybe a flaw in our um, logic or argument in trying to answer this question? Well, that's certainly certainly true. I mean, our patients are hugely variable. We're seeing them at different time points in the course of their illness. Um, even if we take patients presenting to the emergency room, they, they've been sick for different lengths of time. Uh, they have different sources of sepsis. Um, they have different bugs. Um, and then we do we do different things to them. Uh, some of them will be going to the operating room. Some of them won't. Uh, some of them will uh, will be getting, um, you know, some of them will be intubated. Some of them won't. So, so there are, you know, it's a heterogeneous population to start with. Uh, and then we're, uh, we're doing different things in terms of fluids. We're, um, we're using a range of different strategies. Some of them are based on physiological criteria. Some of them are based on complex measurements. Um, there are some which are which are very um, very simple. Uh, some which aren't. Uh, we're maybe uh, exposing these patients to to the intervention for different periods of time. We're interpreting some of these criteria in different ways. Um, so to reduce that to a really broad brush, lots of fluid versus little fluid is it's oversimplifying. There's no question about that. Um, at the same time, uh, I think we we have enough um, we have enough data to say that this may be a really important question, and the right way to to answer this is with big pragmatic uh, randomized trials, doing relatively simple things, um, and then we can refine at a later stage. Um, so, uh, yes, we're oversimplifying. Uh, I don't think we had, I don't think we have much choice in that. Um, but yes, there, there will be room for refinement, uh, no matter what. 
just a just a short comment on that is that I I, I completely agree that it's a it's a simplification. It's also a theoretical uh, simplification, but um, in order to change uh, clinical practice, um, I guess also that people's way of thinking about this need to to change, um, and 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 this may this may happen by 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 illustrating the um, the benefits and harms in a more simplistic way. Um, so I think that uh, it may not answer clinical questions for each patient, and the septic patients are very heterogeneous, but uh, but it's, it's also, this whole fluid approach is also a way of, it's a, it's a mindset, I, I think, and, and for that to change, uh, probably a simplistic approach can be, can be beneficial. I think those are both great Absolutely. answers. Yeah. So, yeah, so maybe we can turn to the key limitations of your study, uh, Tina, so I'll let you um, uh, go through it and, and, and maybe refer to what limitations you identified in your study and what do you would expect uh, future studies to address in order to address those limitations. Uh, Tina first and then John. Yeah, um, so I think that performing meta-analysis, that they, the meta-analysis, they reflect uh, they reflect the trials that are analyzed and put into the meta-analysis and John touched upon that before with the uh, with the um, the evidence pyramid, then perhaps the the meta analysis it could also be seen as not a, in the top of the evidence pyramid, but also as like um, it's like a something that you used to look at the the trials um, we have. So maybe there it's even outside the evidence pyramid. It's more like a um, looking from from a top point of point of view. Um, so they reflect the trials analyzed, and and, and trials of, of fluids are. They're very complex. Uh, they're complex hemodynamic interventions, and uh, the intervention control groups, they, they're they are different among the trials. Um, and I believe that also in time, the interventions we choose, uh, they will they will probably differ. Um, so, so, so this is a limitation in, the, in performing the meta-analysis. Um, the lack of blinding in fluid trials um, is evident. We can't blind uh, different approaches to fluid. Um, they may have affected the outcome. Uh, however, it may be less likely for, for an outcome like uh, mortality. And then, uh, then there, were, there were a few trials who actually succeeded in separating fluid volumes, as we talked about earlier. Um, in addition, an additional comment to that is, is, is probably this finding illustrates the difficulties in, in conducting fluid trials as well. Um, and then I think finally, we, we perform trial sequential analysis, and um, when you do so, it's uh, it's also limited by uh, a decision of an uh, a priori uh, relative risk reduction or increase, and we chose 15%, and this estimate is also used in in clinical trials, but you could argue that a smaller difference in mortality may also be clinical, clinically re relevant. Thank you, Tina. Uh, Tom? I mean, sorry, uh, John? Yeah. Uh, well, I think I think we've probably covered this to a large extent already. Um, you know, I think Tina colleagues did a great job with the, the, the trials available to them, and this is as rigorous as it could be, but but, but the usual, uh, I suppose, caveats with any systematic review that, that there's heterogeneity in the, um, in the in the trials between the trials, um, particularly with regard to separation uh, between the 
the groups, um, perhaps the timing of the intervention, um, and uh, and the systematic review conclusions are therefore subject to uh, the limitations of the trials. Um, so, and of course, these are complex interventions, so so they don't lend themselves particularly well to. Um, uh, a reductionist approach to, to, to lower versus higher volumes. Um, so in, in reality, wanna, um, yeah. Yeah, I want to comment on that because you you bring up the importance of, you know, if I give a patient fluid, I'm also doing other therapies such as, you know, changing the vasopressors or um, determining, well, maybe my patient's got uh, sepsis in their lungs, maybe I'm going to be a bit more conservative with fluid versus sepsis in the abdomen, which I tend to give a whole lot more fluid. Um, so maybe comment on that, and is, is that what's making it so difficult to uh, get to this one-size-fits-all approach? Uh, I think you've, I think you've, you've mentioned, uh, uh, you've mentioned something, and I'd like to come back to what Tina said about um, about a mindset. Um, so, for example, you've, you've mentioned that um, in, in giving less fluid, you may that may affect the dose of vasopressors. For example, that that, that isn't actually particularly well founded uh, uh, as, an, as an assumption. We all, we all think that, um, <laughs> but in reality, it, it may or may not uh, make, make the difference that we think. But it may change your behaviour with regard to vasopressors, um, even if even if the the physiology doesn't change. Um, so, uh, so there's a huge element of um, uh, there are huge issues around human behaviour uh, when we when we start changing a really fundamental aspect of of our clinical practice, which are, are fascinating but very 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 hard to study. Just a quick, uh, quick, uh, fun comment to that is that the, in the um, in the first classic trial by by our, our trial group uh, by Peter Yotop, he did a, a post hoc analysis of the uh, noradrenaline dose um, in the groups, and because the main comment to this trial when it was initiated is that it, you would you're indirectly making a making a noradrenaline trial, and the, the first classic trial was also protocolized as a both uh, fluid and uh, an adrenaline trial for um, when you apply to the uh, to the um, national authorities. It was we made the application for for, for both drugs. Um, so you made this post hoc analysis, and, and and there wasn't within the first twenty four hours there was no difference in in the dose of noradrenaline between the groups. And this this may or may not be true in 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 future trials. I I don't know, but it's a it's a fun comment too. That's very yeah, interesting. It's, it's uh, yeah, and the fact that, uh, but it, but it may influence your decision making about when to start noradrenaline. Uh, uh, yeah, independent of the uh, of the requirement. So, Tina, um, maybe you could tell us, uh, based on your um, uh, systematic review meta-analysis, how do you think your findings are going to advance research and clinical practice uh, with regards to fluid resuscitation in sepsis? And then I'll hand it over to John after that. Um, yeah, so I hope that this um, this this will will um, show and 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 make people realize, other than just us in this podcast, that that there's this large knowledge gap uh, remaining in this area, um, and that we should address. Um, and uh, I think that. 
key finding is that we do have uh, we do have data for mortality and, and and serious adverse events as we touched upon, which are the the best estimate to date. And um, as John also said, this is a good argument uh, why why the approach of um, the best estimate to date is probably that the more restrictive approach is, is safe. But it's also a very good argument why it's uh, it's safe to be enrolled in a clinical trial, um, and it's it's necessary to obtain uh, the required data um, to draw more firm conclusion on this. So there's a there's there's certainly a need for for uh, randomized clinical trials on this subject, and um, I hope that that ongoing trials will be able to answer this particular question and and with the with the sample size uh, calculated, the required information size, we do believe that, that that data from some of the large ongoing trials should should be able to answer this question uh, more firmly. And um, another another comment is also that this is this is basically the food administration's one is one area of this whole uh, food therapy. Another another area is the uh, the de resuscitation phase, which we've not touched upon so so i mean that can all, that should also be and will also be addressed in in trials by particularly the, uh, the the radar 2 trial which we're looking forward to the results of thank you tina um john i'll let you have the final word yeah well i, I think this uh this systematic meta analysis should should spur us on to to look at this question uh more um, it highlights the the gaps in our our knowledge, and um, I guess it should make us think. Uh, so, I think we've all evolved uh, ways of working around knowledge gaps, and we do that all the time, and, and rightly so. Um, but sometimes, in doing so, we lose sight of the fact that the knowledge gap exists at all. Uh, we get comfortable in our um, relatively uninformed or uh, uh, practice, and uh, this kind of um, this kind of study should should remind us uh, just how shaky the foundations are in which we're basing our practice. Um, I hope that you know there are some uh, some large studies ongoing, which which I hope will uh, bring us much closer to a definitive answer um, to this this question. But they won't uh, they won't answer everything, and uh, particularly when we think about the, the heterogeneity and the, um, of the interventions, we, we're going to need to fine-tune this for a, for a long time. Um, in terms of clinical practice, what should we do when we have a, a septic patient in front of us? Well, think, I guess, uh, is the key thing. Um, we have to justify everything that we do. Um, every time we, we, we reach for another fluid bolus, we have to think about what we hope to achieve, and we have to justify it uh, to ourselves. Because on the current uh, information we have, more fluid therapy uh, is 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 harmful. Uh, and that's our best guess. So, so we should think really, really carefully every time we we do this, and uh, and, and not do it as a reflex. And that's probably about as far as we can we can go at the moment. In line with that, you could probably say that uh, along due to the current data we have, then then the decision to, to give uh, more fluids probably should require uh, 
an even better argument or a more a more sound reason than than not doing so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with both of you, and uh, I think you both highlighted the importance of taking the time to actually pause and think carefully whenever you administer therapies such as fluids. Um, I'd like to give a big thank you um, to Drs. Mayhoff and uh, Silverside for a really interesting, insightful conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs> <laughs>